Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for taking the time. I think this has taken uh, this has taken a few months to arrange, yeah? Yeah. Sadly, well, not sadly, but um, I had a little uh, distraction in between. <laughs> a little? A little? Tell us about it. Well, yeah. I, in the last, he actually turned six months yesterday, oh, so I became a oh. father six months ago to a beautiful little boy named Flint. Is that your um, first? Yes, our first. You're a father, I know. Yeah, two now. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm sure you can testify to the fact that this sort of life before and then life afterwards. <laughs> yes, there is. I tell people it's kind of like you're on National Geographic and you're the chimpanzee they're talking about, you know? Yes. It's like, <laughs> and you can hear the narration as well, so you kind of get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The father gorilla has whatever, right? Yeah. But it, no, no, life, no. <laughs> life changes, you know? And, and a lot of us, a lot of the people now are having kids. I wouldn't yeah, say growing I, up, but definitely having kids. Yeah, maturing maybe, maybe. In, way, in certain ways. But um, I feel I feel like the child in me sort of, I guess, being in the field that we're in, artistic and creative, um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that I found I'm getting re-excited about. Not that that's a legitimate word, but, um, you know, there's properties that you kind of, books or things like that you want to read again. And he's a great excuse to sort of dive into that from the nuts and bolts up sort of thing. So yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pour on him a lot of my childhood books and stories and things like that. So yeah, it's, awesome. it's a great, it's a great experience. So it's definitely um, shifts your priority in life quite drastically. So yeah, my, my brain's definitely been in sort of a partially work, but uh, majority father getting to become a father headspace. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about the pre-kid Andrew then, because I think some people are going to be in there and I'm sure some people want to know like how you did it. And then we'll talk uh, yeah. you know, about the, the more mature stuff for the adults in the room later. But tell me, where'd you go to school? Going back to high school or sort of college? When you started training yeah. as an artist, that could be high school or whatever. But uh, high school books, I'd say, instead of taking notes. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I moved to New Zealand um, after doing a bit of traveling, and mm-hmm. so that was when I really decided that I was going to try and use the arts to my career. And so did a computer graphic design diploma um, in Palmerston North, and then I went on and did my honours degree at Wanganui School of Design, Mm -hmm. um, all here in in New Zealand, um, specialising in sort of 3D character arts, specifically using 3D art as a means to sort of broach 2D art as a way, like um, kind of what Aaron Sims was sort of broaching in those early days. I was hugely inspired by that to sort of see where I could go with that. What was the big lesson from university, the thing that helped you get your job it's weird you know i i I, hmm, I don't want to sound like i have anything negative to say about universities Mm -hmm. (laughs) coming up with that but i don't think a lot of them today are catered for the industry and i I don't know personally having been in for a while how you do that other than you cater you get you cater people to be prepared for anything really and so i think when i was in university especially the digital age was still sort of transforming the industry landscape and so for, as an observer through university, I was definitely seeing stuff that I was like going, hmm, well, this doesn't really relay. And it wasn't, this isn't the traditional versus digital practice argument at all. It, it was more how the university applied 
their practices to design workflows and, and things like that that I just found later could have been refined a little bit more. And so I think a lot of the online presence, the online stuff really helped me a lot sort of gather my perspective. Uh, CG Talk was popping up back then and mm-hmm. you could sort of get the insight from a lot of other industry professionals, what was really going on rather than the sort of theoretical version that I, I, I found a little obscuring. But I did, the, I think a lot of the manual practices, the research theory, I think that was was really valuable that I got out of university. You know, writing a thesis was quite a challenge and, and gathering all the research and finding out what had, what had been done and, you know, where the holes were and what was still to be done. You know, I, mm-hmm. I definitely learned a great deal from that. And I find that as a great university is a great time for that kind of learning. But you had a lot of skills and whatnot you had to pick up outside of that then. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. You're a concept artist, creature and concept artist. Does that mean environments or do you stay focused on character? Majority of the time when there's a character or a creature, I, I sort of go there. But um, for the last sort of three to four years, I have definitely been doing a lot of environments and set design as well. Is that a job that you can get out of school? How do people even think about kind of you working know, like, towards that career now? When I left university, I, I thought there was kind of like five guys like Miles Tavares, Steve Wang. You know, there was like right. these, this little, little group of people that did the monsters and movies because they ironically there wasn't that many movies being made you know now we've got the star wars universe getting built the harry potter universe getting built over there the monster universe down here and so there's a lot more work than there was back then and so i struggled to answer that question because i think for me it was i got taken under the wing by richard very early on who saw richard taylor from weta Mm-hmm. in my career and um, let me be mentored by a lot of his the designers there and I felt like that was a sort of like a crash course <laughs> in what I do now and, and sort of a, a stripping back down to the bare essentials I think I experienced a lot of humility in a, in a good way when I first started there and was sort of really the building blocks for how I decided what I really wanted to do in this career was that yeah, so started started really answering that's not really answering the question of <laughs> how a young person becomes a creature and concept artist I think today's visibility for sure, you know, platforms like ArtStation and stuff like that are definitely going to help you get picked up for the job. And I, from my mm-hmm. experience, it's, it's quite an obscure, a lot of studios will do creature and character design, but since sort of evolving away from the studio, uh, sort of where ILM sort of platforms are now working with production designers. Yeah, it's sort of very much word of mouth and someone sort of needing your skills specifically for that job. And so I definitely think, you know, the studios can offer a great platform to get exposure. And, and even now online, you know, if, you, if you're good enough, they don't care how old you are when you graduated, someone will send you a direct message and, and ask you to work on the job. What does it mean to be good enough, though? And I don't mean to be kind of patronizing here. It's just a, it's a belief in my mind that, and I think a lot of artists, they, we want to be good. So we fall into this kind of mastery trap where it's like we just spend yeah. forever learning all these things, but only so, especially because this is a production job. Yeah. What is good? How can we define it? So like if we were to look at your amazing Spider-Man 2 and you got this crazy face and, you know, this suit and this guy's going a little nuts here. Like, what is it that helps us understand a deliverable that somebody actually wants and would be excited about. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, there's a, there's a subjective part of it because yeah. I think there's a guy paying you to do something and he ultimately has a taste and a, and a point of view and a perspective mm-hmm. and you ultimately got a jive with that. Right. And appeal to that and talk to that or be able to walk them through, you know, I've worked for a lot of directors that are extremely visual. They can give you a pencil drawing and you go, oh, I know exactly what that is and I can go and yeah. interpret that. And then you have some directors that really have no clue and want you to walk them through a process. So 
for me, good or bad isn't really the right question. It's sort of effective. Can you communicate what mm. you're trying to say and can you represent what the director is trying to visualize? And you might, that might not be right. And so you might need a more of a, a loose approach. And I think in that way, being having a lot of options, you know, being able to draw very quickly, render something very quickly. I'm sort of on the school of thought that I, I do think design should go through a process, but a lot of productions force you to go to that sort of Spider-Man 2 level straight away because producers and execs are looking at this and, and they don't really want to sort of fill in the gaps a drawing kind of forces you to do. Right. And so I find as a designer, I, I don't like stepping in at that phase. So I, I think if you want to be good for other designers, showing your drafting skills, drawing, thumbnailing, rough ideas, lots of ideas, I think you're going to get designers, production designers being really appealed to you, but then also being uh, able to take that to a, a really well-rendered, well-executed version, because you got to remember a lot, while it's nice to play in this sort of theoretical ideas environment and what if and loose drawings, you, you have to this eventually has to look like something a, a studio or someone can look at and believe it's going to go into their film or um, a studio can turn this into a, a viable VFX asset or a character or an environment, whatever the whatever the end result is. So I think if an effective communicator visually, while you might not be able to all the time be able to talk to your work, being able to lay something out, someone can look at it and go, I know exactly what that is and that's going to fulfill the brief that I'm asking you to, to fulfill. Other than that, I think it's just subjective, really. You know, it's one guy might like one way of working, one guy might like another look, and that's then it's just sort of gambling. <laughs> Got it. You know, and, and uh, I want to come back to that here in a second, because if we were to look at your Spider-Man and then if we looked at your Pacific Rim, those are two different yeah. levels of development, right? Yeah. I'm happy to open either one of those if you want. Yeah. We start with the Pacific Rim. Yeah. One of the things, because, uh, you know, we work a lot with concepts and production when in my school and I'm always trying to get students to get the most explicit concept that they can, but I always make sure that they're aware, like there's the Justin Sweets yeah. who, you know, every, it's all in what implied design. It's like, there's something beautiful there, but I don't quite know what that rune shape is. Right. Sure. Yeah. And then there's Neville Page where it's like, you know, exactly the anatomy of this thing. It's very... Totally penciled but if we're looking at pacific rim you're kind of doing the mix of this and if we take this into consideration with the whole idea of effective communication you know what's the brief what's the goal at this stage so at this stage we were approached by the production designer for pacific mm -hmm. rim to tag in with the art department and they had i think a, a rushed amount of monsters done from the previous movie that were kind of implied on some of the ideas they had going on in this movie. And then they had mm -hmm. a, a small round of concept art done shortly after this production, I think in the attempts to get interest going in Pacific Rim 2. And none of it was really what the director that they got on wanted to sort of see in his final film. So we were brought on as a real scattergun, what we call it, where a scattergun just, just spend a week spitballing different monsters and you know obviously what i can show is is a limited portion of the work because it's it, mm -hmm. we sort of always think you know when i was at where we were very respectful and i still try to be very respectful to our studios what they are happy with us showing because you know sometimes the vision can be very different from the final film and that can conflict with marketing etc but they were pretty happy for us to show quite a fair bit of work but yeah again there was a lot more work done with a lot crazier ideas mainly looking at this sort of mega kaiju guy that they hadn't got anything sort of where these three monsters combined. And so we started just looking at how that could happen. Um, I think some of these earlier illustrations just really trying to break down a, an iconic silhouette. They wanted to know what it looked like right at the end and then sort of problem solve that afterwards. And then the brief changed and 
let's look at the individual creatures and how they come together. But I think they kind of wanted us to just go all over the show at that time and, and explore anything. So for me, like a black and white approach, I used a bit of ZBrush. For some of the stuff, I just went directly and painted and drew. A, for these, there were a lot of, just a lot of random ideas. And so at this stage, I really just sort of stick quite loose and flexible and try branch out in as many, many options as I can before going into something a little bit more sculptural. And I always think for creatures having something 3D, whether it's clay or, or ZBrush, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's always in the hands of the wielder how good it is. But it's, I think it's very important with anatomy and something that has to ideally have a lot of angles on screen, seen from different angles, you know, you can design something in 2D and then easily pop that into 3D. And especially if, you know, I'm in the driver's seat, I, I find that quite an effective process and especially handing over for VFX and stuff like that while they go and refine the hell out of these models, it still gives them a good building block to build off. How much are you thinking anatomy? And when I'm asking that, I'm thinking about Carlos Fuentes in this class that we, uh, we ran. We ran a couple of classes with him, I think last year or the year before. And one yeah. of the things that he really pushed, you know, obviously he's a master of anatomy. Yeah, um, yeah but he pushed in the beginning, no anatomy. He didn't want right. anybody to do anatomy because anatomy, from his perspective, is a tightener. So how do you deal with that? And how do you build? Because it looks like you've got a, a vast repertoire, a visual library, you know, of all this stuff. How does it all come together? I think Carlos, what he's forgetting is that he's got a catalog of anatomy as well. That when, yes. he's doing, what, when he's when he's doing that sort of subconscious scribbling and graphic, you know, looking for that graphic design motif, it's sort of filtering through there. And I find that's I, I, I subscribe to the same process. I think first and foremost, you've got to have something that's visually appealing. Find out what the director wants because we at Weta we used to get really stuck on the brief, you know, you got this object, this robot, this creature to design, and you want to make it the best thing. And you develop this whole movie around this thing. And it's actually on screen for like 10 minutes. And, and that's the hard truth is that what you're doing is arguably going to be on screen for 10 minutes. Sometimes it's on screen for longer. But so most importantly, is that graphic design motif? What's, what's, what environment is it going to sit in? Is it a tight sort of closed environment? Is it a big wide open space environment? And how best is this thing going to sit in that environment? And so that, yeah, I agree with Carlos, the graphic design motif is the most important thing. The silhouette, the shape, the anatomy can all be figured out and placed in there. Um, I'm not belittling the anatomy. I think it's important to study it and keep that catalog building in the in the side there so that when you do sort of turn the right, what's it, the left brain logic off, you can, it's there, it's still there filtering your decisions with that creature, mm -hmm. but you are being a little bit more explorative with what you're using. I think I, when I did a design course, I always encourage students not to use a base model. Like don't use, even if you're doing a makeup, don't use a, a human base because you're going to limit what you're doing with that design because you've already got this kind of figure there and uh, a lot of stuff kind of looks okay. It's got muscles and places. And so you, you, you're sort of a little scared to be brave with those forms. And so, yeah, I do think it's very important to approach it as a graphic design silhouette motif first before you get stuck into what the muscles and bones are doing. What do you start with, base mesh-wise? Sphere. <laughs> really? Yeah, and those curved tubes. I love those, mm -hmm. clay brush. Yeah. And I really try to use the model quite, you know, I use, I try to use the little um, the polygons to my advantage and, and really use the geometry shape to really find that graphic design mm. motif. I think it's... Uh, it's an incredible tool as a designer to be able to quickly get something out. And, you know, I don't like to take the shortcuts of using pre-existing stuff at all. I think every design brief warrants sort of starting starting from that sphere, from that basic clay. Or, or you know, sometimes I start with a sketch. A lot of the time it will be a quick doodle like these guys just to get an idea of that 
graphic design motif just it depends really actually because sometimes i'm very quick to jump into zbrush if i have a very strong idea in my head and sometimes i want to play around in 2d it depends on how solid an idea i have in my head of what the character i think you know like pacific rim the creatures can be quite abstract and so you don't have a really solid base to work on but when i was working on mortal engines for example shrike from the get-go was a bipedal humanoid two eyes two arms two legs nothing really surprising off that silhouette except the shape of that silhouette so yeah i think there's two different approaches there depending on how sort of abstract or out there the design is or how sol- you know solidified that design is from the get-go mm, that's a good point adam is a he's one of my students he's working now over at bioware and uh, creatures oh, cool. is like his thing right and he was you know, we, he, we did some character and he went through the boot camp and he, he wanted to do creatures quickly as humanly possible. And I know you're at Weta, you guys are mostly focused on film, right? Yeah, well, I, I haven't been at Weta for the last three years. So, um, oh, where are you at now? Yeah, I'm a freelancer now. Um, oh, with, well, all right. Work for myself. <laughs> awesome. So in your experience, how does somebody who hasn't, like they want to do creature is this an acceptable kind of direction for us to jump into? Should we be also focused on character as well? What is your thought on that? Yeah, I think character is is, is very important. I, I don't think one negates the other. But it's you know what I mean? Like some some people are really driven to just, I just want to create like crazy creatures. That's because I get that from yeah. students. Like it's a and that's that, drive. Sometimes I, I find that's like an excuse not to like, Yes. Like learn, you know, like uh, uh-huh. creatures are uh, creatures can be whatever they want, large fangs and large teeth, and and yeah. you're gonna probably end up in the bubble gummy video gamey area where stuff looks a little hokey, and you know that's a journey. It, it is a journey. Mm-hmm. How much satisfaction you want out of your craft, I guess, is the question I would ask. And if that's the if it's a career, then yeah, you could probably have a lot of fun just making wacky monsters. But I think if you really want to get into the sort of what would you call it, the philosophy of creature design and yeah, um, you know, there's there's a long journey. You know, I I always try to take take students whenever I teach through the the journey of you know like someone like Giga, for example, who was a a fan. People sort of look at him as this anomaly, but he he isn't really when you go through his history and you, you find he's a fan of Ernst. I always get his name wrong. Fausch Fusch, who was a fan of Baroque work, and you, and you once you start to see that lineage, you can start to see oh well, that's how Giga got to where he was. It's still it's it's an amazing feat, but there's a there's a history there. That's a really great point, because understanding the lineage. Like, I remember there's a sculptor I love, I just adore, Christopher Carbonell, but it's French, so I'm murdering that. And right. I was looking at his work, and I'm like, man, this guy, I love this guy's work. Like, he's so original. And then I saw his teacher's work, and I'm like, he ripped his teacher, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? And uh, so there's that lineage. I get it. I mean, he did. He won up his teacher by, by a long shot. But what inspires you? Who do you steal I- from? I grew up, my father was a wildlife artist, so his work straight from the get-go, he had this oil painting of this elephant that sat in our lounge, and it, it, I just studied it all the time. And when I was as, as young as I can remember, he had a, a work in progress of a, a portrait that he was doing. So for me, wildlife artists, I think David Shepard, Ray Harris Ching, these guys that were sort of naturalists that went out and spent a few months in Africa, and I grew up in Africa, so I was very fortunate to grow up amongst a lot of animals, and they captured the sort of like romanticism of the wilds that felt like you were there, but it felt like you were, it felt like it was your imagining of it there. And so for me, my creature design process, I think it had a very naturalistic approach, which led me to Wayne Barlow's work, who I've luckily become a really good friend with and just 
adore his work. I think he he's he's the Dali of our era, but more you know he's a he's a storyteller uh, um, as well and written an incredible book, Plug for Wayne, God's Demon. But um, that attention to the sort of natural history world and how he again used that catalog to inform his aliens, demons. You know, if you pick it, Wayne's done it. That really, I think, arguably, he's one of the biggest influences process-wise and just that sort of respect for nature and the forms. And the forms, you know, when you, if you look at character and the, the abundance of information we learn from human anatomy and the, the great, you know, look at what Carlos does with the human form and his designs. It's, it's phenomenal just with that. And so that, you know, every animal has that opportunity with different sort of anatomy, whether it's beaked animals or, you know, there, there's something in the forms that you can obsess with and, and study forever and just one particular animal. And that can inform an entire branch of creatures that you could design out. So for me, I think it's it's always important to go back to that. Like it could be mechanical. Maybe your creatures are mechanical in nature, but if you're inspired by engines or if you're inspired by animals, just go back to that source and immerse yourself in it because I think the inspiration is abundant and you can start to see why guys like Ego were never lost for work. They weren't sitting there sort of imagining it. They they were looking at this wealth of work before him. He was probably looking at Baroque work and and letting that inform his amazing menagerie of, of work. Uh, I still consider it original. I don't think it's stealing. I just like the idea that it's resting on the shoulders of giants. And I think anything good does that. It, it has a lineage and it has a history. And so for me, I always try to put that back into nature and, and a lot of those natural history artists really had that process they would go and look at these animals in different perspectives you know study a leg look at it on the, in the tree off the tree on the ground you know and, and it really starts to inform your design process i think you get really excited about design rather than feeling like oh what do i have to what do i do now <laughs> i never mm-hmm. really find myself in that situation for inspiration do you find yourself coming from graphical shapes or coming from that explorative shape of looking at, at the reference looking at uh, uh, Ray Harris Ching, I think you said, right? Yeah. And um, and looking at the construction of it, or is it a mix? How does it work for you? And mostly, what I'm thinking here is is when you're just ha- when you're tasked with coming up with something. Yeah, I think when you're coming up with something like these guys, I tend to look at that graphical shape straight away. You know, no anatomy with holes in it and and things right. like that. And so it was it's being explorative. And so I try to find something at this stage that's out there i guess for lack of a better word that's that's mm-hmm. surprising but again sort of drawing it back down to something like like shrike um sadly i don't have any of the work on here or, or sort of some of the stuff i've done on make previous makeup jobs where you kind of want to find something you've seen before or, or is familiar i guess there's two sometimes you want to surprise an audience and give them something they've never seen before even though it might be composed of components that they've seen before but in a way they've never seen it or you want to give them something that they're very familiar with out of context. Shrike's a human, but he's essentially a, a dead human that's a robot. And so looking at real faces and how they engage with the world, how they engage with people, but looking through this sort of dead visage of a face of metal, and that's the surprise. So I think two different briefs demand two different styles. Of one, One's quite you know abstract and graphic design and looking for something that's a strong shape, and the other is looking for something that's familiar and that the audience can relate to. What do you think are some of the mistakes that people make in design? And mostly I'm thinking just beginning designers, not necessarily like yeah, yeah. professionals, just <laughs> beginning designers, like the mistakes that we make kind of thinking about this. And and really it's kind of a mindset that I'm trying to understand because I'm sure there's a million technical mistakes, but the mindset's the thing that doesn't get taught a lot. Yeah, 
And there, I think I would agree strongly with Carlos because I think I, you know, ZBrush now can get, you know, I see a lot of kids doing these these ZBrush courses and coming out and they're pumping out tons of aliens and and the specularity is yes. great and there's texture yes. on it and rim lighting and it's all it all looks like candy. But the thing that they haven't really focused on is the graphic design motif and and mm -hmm. that's with no matter how much texture and no matter how much gloss you put on that thing, it's it's never gonna read well if it doesn't have that salt um, solved from the get go. And that that goes down goes down to thumbnailing and just being loose. Uh, you know, it, it looks whenever I see student work I, that that I feel I would critique it would be to loosen up. Go go don't go straight to ZBrush and don't put it in Keyshot straight away. Do a page of small little heads and and find one that sticks out to you. Go well that um, my eye keeps going to that one. Well, there's a reason why your eye keeps going to that one because something about the silhouette is more appealing. And so. Yeah, just really focus on those design motifs, I think, because I think kids are really tempted to polish stuff straight away. You know, oh, I've got a shape there. Whoop, I'm mm -hmm. going to get the alpha brushes out and pop it in a key shot straight away. And you get very distracted very easily by all the all the specularity and stuff like that. So I think keeping things simple and having being loose and, and focusing on that design motif and trusting your eye, you know, um, letting yourself be guided by that design by what you're attracted to but i think yeah loosening up at the beginning rather than going straight into something very tight i think was what i would suggest mm, you're skirting the uh old fogey territory there <laughs> yeah i know i know especially especially bringing <laughs> bringing carlos into the conversation i had a couple <laughs> of conversations with him on that <laughs> so I know, you know, I know. loosening up is important Focusing on the 2D, got all of that stuff. And so you're saying like, uh, maybe, you know, one of the mindset problems people get into is, is the candy, is just getting yeah. enamored with the software. Yeah. And it's easy, right? I mean, I can right now pop a sphere and put some texture on it and, and key shot and it looks amazing. Like, you know, and it's just totally. a sphere. That it's, um, and so I think we've kind of got to get desensitized to that a little bit rather than, ooh, it's, it's you know, its eyes are shiny. Um, I made it. I made something. I, yeah, it's a weird world we live in, and so there's a lot of things that odds. You know, kids can post that stuff, and they get a lot of notoriety. And then you know, an old fogey comes along and goes, "Hey, you need to focus on the fundamentals." <laughs> they go, "Well, I got six thousand likes. What the hell do you know?" It's like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I got a I job, and that. you got six thousand likes. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> if that's what you want, then great. <laughs> Fair enough. Hope you can eat that. <laughs> yeah. So it's a weird, I think there's a, there's a strong battle between egoism and uh, fundamentalism out there. And I think, you know, I'm definitely approaching that old fogey. And I, you know, I, I bump my fist every time I see Carlos, you know, giving someone a go online. I'm like, yeah, man, <laughs> you know, like, you know they, we need guys like that out there. I think, you know, um, he plays the part really well. Carlos has got such an, like such a good heart, you know, it's just, yeah. It's yeah. you know I think I've never met him, but I, I'm a I'm a fan from afar. But um yeah he's um yeah he's he's all heart. He's just he believes in this stuff like passionately, you know. Yeah, and it shows in his work. I mean, it's it's iconic. He's one of those guys that's really achieved his own style, and he's you know mm -hmm. you can see a Carlos Fuente, and that's that's something to be said. You know, like I don't think a lot of kids understand that journey. You know, where you're actually creating your own style of work, and it's like that's something I'm you know striving for one day. And you know, when I think I get older, I keep thinking I'm. One day when I'm old, I'm like, God, now I'm nearly 40. It's like, <laughs> it's happening, dude. <laughs> mm -hmm. How important do you yeah. think style is? Because style is a question that comes up a lot, right? You get some people online have a very specific style and you can see them sketching something in, you know, five minutes. In it. But it's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Style is very cool as an artist. Commercially, 
it'll get you a project maybe and hopefully that project's like a series <laughs> <laughs> yeah because it, 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 it's limiting i think in, in a commercial sense if you've got a style that works well for a particular style of animation or, or that kind of work i think you're golden but then there's yeah. craig mullins right yeah i would say he's pretty flexible i know he's got a loose mm. sort of style but it's it's like you said about justin sweet it's it's kind of all you really need <laughs> His work is very, he, he communicates very well. Um, uh, Ian McHugh, another good friend of someone I think of who has a very strong style. But, you know, he spent 20 years developing Grand Theft Auto with arguably, as quoting him, no style. You know, that to him, it was boring just doing these environments, uh, urban environments. And so he said when he left that, he, he wanted to leave the ground and go to the sky. And so he did all those airships in his own I think he's a phenomenal designer, but his style is is getting him places. So I think he's a great testimony for how style works for the individual. I think if you want to get off that sort of commercial bandwagon and start your own worlds, then styles that style's the way to go. And if you've do got you have, your own, then... yeah. Do you have a list of artists like if I'm just getting into this, or maybe I I know I'm kind of passionate about it? Do you have like a list of artists' names that you know would help educate somebody as to what's out there? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ian McHugh, definitely one. I worked with him um, on Mortal Engines. That guy just, yeah, he, he's one of the most amazing like sketches I've ever seen. Just, just incredible. He's definitely one. Christian Pierce, another homie from um, Weather Days and still a good mate. He's one of the most like incredibly mechanically minded. He's got a great sense of humor, first of all. So we're working together on this Underlords project, but he's just an incredible mechanical designer. He did a lot of the robots for Elysium. And yeah, he's incredibly mechanically minded. Aaron Beck. Another great mechanical designer, Nick Killer, phenomenal painter, and long time I've, I've worked with Nick for nearly my whole career, and he's he's a designer I aspire to be <laughs> mm -hmm. a beast. Wayne Baller, definitely. I'm surprised at how few people actually know Wayne's work. Um, I know, especially me too. in the creature world. I'm like, how do you do creature design and not know Wayne Baller? Yeah. But please, please check Wayne Baller's work. I think he is one of the godfathers of. He laid the foundation for what we do and how we do it, really. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just thinking, too. He's so much of just the overarching, you know. Yeah, the process. And I think anyone who looks at, who is, is a creature designer today, uh, worth his salt, will will nod their hat at Wayne. I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, Expedition, the book, I know, I don't think there's any copies anymore, but that book just blew my mind and I, I absorb it <laughs> so many times and his hell work. But he, he really does that graphic design motif point we were talking about earlier. He really embodies that in his work and it's you can very quickly recognize a Wayne Barlow work. Jamie Bazwarek was another great creature designer who mentored me when I first started at Weta. He's got a phenomenal mind and a phenomenal approach to creatures and anatomy as well. You know, like he's someone who really, really has a wide catalog of, of different styles of anatomy. Anymore, I'll, I'll blurt out along as I go, maybe. But those cool. are a lot of the guys I definitely um, look up to and follow and have had the privilege. Uh, a couple of old hats as well, John Howe and Alan Lee definitely um, ah, love love yeah. their work. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of working with John a couple of times. And he's just a well, you know, I think he is the wizard of the art world. And I think as far as art and illustration and the philosophical side, John's got a wealth of knowledge on his blog and his website. and um, He does a few talks here and there. And if you're ever lucky enough to get into one of his courses, I know he teaches in Europe a lot. I would do that in a heartbeat. That uh, brings up the whole illustrator versus concept artist discussion. Yeah. And a lot of education is actually more in the illustration phase than in the concepting. So if I was going to go to like a four-year yeah. program, it's pretty much illustration would be my choice. Yeah. So 
how does that work from your perspective as a working concept artist today? Is an illustrator, is that a good enough career or education or? I think it is because, again, it's that it's that fundamentals. You, you know, I think just sitting down and chopping photos, you know, you know, I'll use Craig Miles as an example because I think it's it's been online and he's talked about us when people said, oh, but I can see a bit of this master's work in your this corner of your painting. And, you know, you clearly chopped this bit over here. And it's like Craig can actually sit down and paint that painting. He could. The problem is in his production line, he's got a day to do that. So, I mean, maybe two days if he's lucky. So the process that you get given to do that piece in a, in a production line is a lot less than if someone's commissioning you to illustrate that painting. And so I think the fact that he could do that painting traditionally has given him the strength to do that concept art quickly, effectively communicate it without laboring over the elements that don't need to be painted in. For example, if, if we all painted every paint stroke on every piece of concept art, we'd still be waiting for, you know, the prequels of Star Wars to come out. It's it's you have to cut corners and that's just the way it is. But I think when I see kids, you know, like sadly, a lot of the studios now are filled with young kids who grew up with laptops and are efficient at Photoshop and can lasso and chop up. But the work, it looks great because you've used photos, but it does fall flat because those fundamentals aren't there. And, you know, we, we saw that very evidently when we did this course, um, we, you know, it was an Ian McKay course. And he <laughs> very quickly was like, no one's using a computer and everyone had to sit down and pencils and all the young junior guys flashing their computers, they struggled, you know, they, they couldn't really present a thumbnail or um, break it down because they didn't have that, that tool. And I think someone like Nick Keller, who I mentioned before, he, he's done an atelier course in Italy and he's a strong illustrator, but his concept artwork is all that stronger because of that fundamental. So I think take that course. I think illustration is a great fundamental background because you will cut corners in the job, but you'll know why you're cutting those corners and you'll cut them a lot better. <laughs> And artistically so. And, you know, there's a difference between Craig Mullins and a 19-year-old who's just lassoing and cutting up photos. And that's because Craig Mullins is a brilliant illustrator. Yeah, we had a master class with uh, Dylan Cole years oh, ago. Awesome. And uh, what that guy can do with the lasso tool just yeah. like blew me away. I'd never then seen you, you see it what his thumbnail paintings as well, what he does with a few paint strokes. Um, yeah. That, that also blows me away, you know, like when he does his, I think he presented one of his thumbnails for Maleficent and it was just paint strokes and it looks, it looked photographic because he, he knows how to get there, you know. So yeah, I think you can cut corners by hopping straight in and getting there with the photos, but I think you'll feel a lot better about it if you've done that fundamental course, you know, and you understand why the illustration works and how to lay out those elements a lot better. Mm, that makes me think of one of my favorite painters, Frank Duvenek. And, uh, yeah, man friend of mine would would always say it's like when you are at it from a distance it looks it's realism but when you're up close it's like just you know blah, <laughs> you yeah. just strokes yeah. you know and, and that's like one of the things i love most about paintings is when it is how it resolves together totally i think there was a great muddy waters article in the, the difference between realism and using a someone did a painting of a photograph and someone they compared it to a john Sargent painting and the, you know mm. the Sargent painting was always arguably more real because it the, the, I think the article summed it up as it was the person, he was sitting there in the environment painting that. It wasn't filtered through the lens and the lens actually distorts everything and you don't, you don't really acknowledge it until you look at it and you go, wow, that's not actually a, how a person's face looks. <laughs> the lens has warped it and distorted it. And, and so, yeah, it's, um, there's something to be said for that uh, gestural painting that um, really captures something, uh, all that detail can't hey? You know, John Singer Sargent actually completely derailed my painting career. I think he does a lot of people because he just <laughs> scratched <their> head. 
<laughs> I when I watched it, I was in a PAFA, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and um, we went down for a trip to the the DC, and we we're at some museum down there, and there was an exhibit of his watercolors, and oh. I it was beyond mastery. I mean, it was unreal. It's like from up close, you see all this like color and you resolve and you see it's like the sun dappled stream yeah. picture with these people. And I was just like, all right, fuck this. I'm done. <laughs> I'm a sculptor. That's it. <laughs> I don't know if I can yeah. do anything else. How do we deal with that comparison as an artist? Because as you go online now, everything's art station, Instagram, and yet, like you said, 6,000 likes. How are we dealing with yeah. comparing, comparing ourselves? You know, what's the metric for success now? Man, it's hard. Eh? That's, that's something I mean, you know, my wife's a phenomenal artist as well. And, we, you know, we mm -hmm. talk about it a lot. And just the, I, I feel for young people today because I think when we were coming up, there was a lot less distraction. It was quite focused. And if you were looking for something, you really had to dig. You know, you had to kind of look up stuff, get books. And, um, you know, in the age of the internet, it was very few. There wasn't any forums that were really like posting with the work that is today. So I think as a young person, it would be, it's, it's so distracting, right? Like it's, there's so many things in your face. I mean, you've got an art station already and it's, it, there's more work than any exhibition houses in the world today and maybe the Louvre, but you could spend all day and you're looking at artwork over and over and over again. And I, th and I think if you're comparing yourself to that all the time, yeah, you almost just want to build a muse at the end of the day. It, it can be quite disheartening. And so I think being very focused on your own journey and things like that, it's a, it's a hard bit of advice to give, but it's the only one I can say. And it's, you know, don't, don't let other people's work get you down. Find yourself. John Sargent's strokes were out there because he applied them that way. And you're, if you applied yourself, you know, it, it won't look like that, but it'll be your own. And I think there's a part of us that's got to own our own approach and our own style. And, and well, I applied myself this much. This is how much I'm getting out of it. But yeah, I think comparing and contrasting today is it's impossible not to do because you post something and it got three likes and someone else posted something that you consider less and they got 500 and what do you do with that information or <laughs> it's it's very difficult i think and so yeah, how do you not take that as a form of judgment it, yeah you, you kind of have to really and we you know as a human condition you you will anyway and you'll adjust your um your actions accordingly after that and i i think that's maybe for guys like us who grew up prior to the internet it's it's easier i find you know i can sometimes just like that ah, social media and I, and I put it away right but i have a peer group i guess that evolved prior to needing the online sort of peer group. And so, yeah, I feel for young people today. I think it's hard, but I maybe it's not so much art focused, but generally uh, I think, you know, just find some good friends and people you can sit next to and go, even if it's just one other person and, and just talk about this stuff and go draw some trees or get out of, get away from the computer and um, <laughs> tell each other it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think one of the things that's, um, kind of along these lines is, is if you have a reason for something then it's easier to deal with problems like this yeah you know, and deal with this judgment but it's easy to lose this reason you know so this might be kind of an odd question or a difficult question to ask but it's like why do you do this like what made you want to be an artist and what makes you kind of wake up and hit all those client meetings because you could shut all that down i imagine i think that answer's changed over the years you know i think when I first started, it was very indulgent. I wanted to eat it all and like absorb it all and just, just immerse myself. And I just thought that would, you know, art and creativity, no matter what it was. And, you know, luckily enough, I got it, it for me, it was, it was creature design and, and I got to work at a great studio like Weta, but it was really just wanting to dive in. And I think 
the philosophical side of that was there more and of a, at that point of time, I'm an earnest student and I just want to plow through this and put my head down and, and take on what I can and, and, and grow and become a, become a great artist. But I think now I, I see, you know, this just, this journey that I've been on and, and what it offers me. And I think this, despite the commercial and, and, and that it, this is my job and this is how I, I pay my bills, I think in a way, the films I work on and the stories I like, it's important, especially in today's day and age, to offer a form of escapism, you know, like, and that's not escapism from responsibility or anything like that. I mean, like, John Howe gave a great talk once about how art's where we can battle our greatest demons, our greatest rivals, the, the, the things we struggle with ourselves the most. And when you're true to that journey about who you are and what you are as a person and what you want to talk about, it's, it's quite unnerving at first. I think you uncover a lot of stuff you might not like about yourself, but I, I find art for me as weird and as you know out there as it can get um, or as commercially pop value as it can be something like Pacific Rim. For me, I, I think of the a kid out there who might not care about the movie or whatever the success of the movie was, but you know, might look at the monsters and want to do that and it might escape them out of that world. I, you know, I grew up in a third world country that was that was really hard at times. There was a lot of violence. And so for me, art, art was a form of escapism. And I think I got sucked into that commercial value and the older I get, the more I return to that that importance of that. It is actually quite a, in, you know, when, when the world is in such chaos, we need we need places to go to. And I think as the artist, we can journey there ourselves and conquer a lot of these things we struggle with in a much more constructive and healthy environment that leaves something that someone else can go and maybe learn from the same thing. You know, like a songwriter never realizes their song impacts everyone, but but it does, you know, and it goes out there. And so I think, you may never realize the importance of your creation or you may judge yourself harshly, but it's important to create nonetheless. So for me, it's just that attachment to the creativity, the creative process, the constant rethinking of life it offers, your one's place in the world. Every world building project is an opportunity to kind of review the world you live in, how you live your life. And for me, it's it's that it can be a very constructive journey if, if you're allowed to be. And so, yeah, waffling on a bit there, but yeah, it's been <laughs> the creative side of it is definitely something I. I live for I, I love you know what i loved about that was the um i'm gonna say this probably incorrectly but it was it's like the justification of escapism and yeah. you know i grew up so poor and so screwed up yeah. it's hard to justify escapism because i'm like you got to be practical you got to get this and you got to get you know, job and yeah i got it and um you know all these things and it's i mean ultimately it led me to create the business i have so that i can actually impact students and so that yeah. there's the positive side of that but it is hard for me to stop and be like how can i just screw off and have yeah. fun and and discover things you know and i think some of us are are like that you know because this production art does attract people who are like hey i can make a living out of it as yeah. opposed to like you know people are just fine arts and music programs yeah. and whatnot what do you do to give yourself permission to just go off and create you know is there any anything that you do uh. that to just allow yourself to kind of go out there and, and have fun and not, you know, and I imagine that's becoming a problem now because you've got, you probably have a different relationship with money. I mean, I had, once I had a kid, I had a totally different relationship with money. You know? Oh yeah. yeah Before I was changed. like, I don't care about money. You know, you can make all the money you want off me. After that, I was like, I need more of this myself now. <laughs> yeah. No, that shift does that. I think that was part of the, you know, motivation for leaving the studio system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a whole nother conversation there. Um, I think for me, it was just becoming brave to step out and like, like yourself, like you said yourself, instead of constantly servicing these studios, although I still am oddly 
working for for studios, although I'm in a more independent contract, I got to pay those bills. But the motivation has become way stronger to develop personal work. You know, my wife and I are now writing our own scripts. So yeah, so that permission to to give myself time that's a lot harder right now. And I think I got to a point in my career right before my wife and I got married, where I was working full time at Weta. And I had outside freelance work. Um, I think I was doing some teaching at the same time. And, and I thought that was great. You know, I was commercially, there was no time. I just was just locked up. And, and I really burned out at the, at the end of that and yeah. have been making strong strides since then, although it's been difficult with baby and, you know, all the logistics to, to focus a lot more on personal work. And then so giving myself permission has become a lot harder, I think, because there is that voice in the back of my mind that goes, responsibility this mm-hmm. isn't going to earn you how do you know it's going to earn you money and <laughs> i think i i'm trying to encourage myself to be a little bit more brave because sometimes you never know i don't want to go into my personal or explorative fun work with the idea of this is going to be commercially successful but often when you let yourself do that it can somehow be something that ends up being commercially successful so i do i do want to make more time for personal work and carve out more it's weird the older i get now i use the word investment and mm-hmm. that's another fogey, um, you know, another gray, gray hair, gray patch just popped up on the side of my head. <laughs> you can't use that kind of work, but it's like, I think, I think I, I look at it that way now because this is my job and career is to, to like expand out the universes or worlds that me and my wife have been creating and, you know, mm-hmm. getting into writing a little bit more. And, and writing is kind of harder for me because I think it's not as free flowing. I'm easier. Uh, world builder so i can write down a lot of descriptive stuff it came from here and this is the lineage and adbc and all that stuff but mm-hmm. creative sort of writing is not really free-flowing so I, I think i like to try when i when i give myself permission it's sort of to do creative things that don't really pertain to my job i play guitar a lot let myself just sort of vent i like cooking and growing plants and i find that stuff really does fuel the the creative juices for my job as well um even though it's not really directly pertained to it it's it's sort of like a, a little valve on the on the, on the side <laughs> yeah that's a good point to actually just even step outside of yeah. the art and cook play guitar There's, i've heard that over and over and people one of the people i was interviewing a while ago was like i just started learning piano oh cool you know, and that and that was he was doing that two hours a night for the last two weeks. You know, and that was charging him up. Awesome, it, it, it's it's so important. You know, I think we've been preached at a lot online with this like work ethic and work. You know, mm-hmm. ten thousand hours and da, 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 and it's like it'll come, it'll come, it'll come. Yes, yes. But I think no one's saying go relax, go like. You know, I listen to a lot of John Cleese. I actually listen to all of John Cleese's podcasts, and I highly recommend that because he. There's no, I guess, qualification in creativity. I think he's studied it as close as anyone really can. You know, and he. He goes through this analogy about like, you know, you go, you go walk down, go, go take a walk to a park and sit down for an hour. I mean, the first half an hour, it'll be chaos. It's, I should have called my mom yesterday. I needed to send that email. You know, crap, I should have delivered that project earlier or my deadlines looming. You know, you you can't escape (laughs) those thoughts will will just mass. And you said, after half an hour, you sort of get to that sweet spot where kind of boredom creeps in. You're like, okay, what am I doing here? Where am I Mm -hmm. doing here? And he said, that's the sweet spot. That's where creativity happens. It's it's being presented with sort of nothing to do, <laughs> in a sense, and it's it's um, allowing yourself to go out there and sort of yeah have those walks and that eureka moment is arguably going to come there quicker than it's going to come sitting at your computer trying to like Google and research and uh, squeeze it out, of, especially if you're blocked. But I think when I'm gardening or when I'm doing something that just isn't really aligned with my creative with my commercial work. 
I just find my brain just goes there anyway. And, and I have a lot stronger idea. I solidify processes. I, I have a little dialogue in my mind. I don't know. There's a lot of thing that comes out where I sort of appreciate that sentiment, as John Cleese said, or it's like, let go, let yourself relax. And I think there's that story of Archimedes, the mathematician who was trying to find volume for the king to measure his gold and spent weeks and couldn't figure it out and was going to get hanged or beheaded, I think, back then. And so his wife told him to take a bath and he gets stepped in the bath and he watched the water rise and bang, figured out volume. So he, he needed to take a bath, basically, and go relax was the only way he was going <laughs> to um, get that get that for me. Listen to your wife, I think, was the point many people take that story. But, but <laughs> It's a good one. I'll tell my wife that. <laughs> I think it's important we go and, yeah, let's steam off and don't always try to align it to, whoa, this is going to inform my job. This is for studying for that problem. This is for, you know, I, I think there's a lot of pressure as well to look like we're always busy on the job and I'm busy, busy, busy. Everyone talks about busy, but, you know, have the courage to say I'm, I'm, I'm relaxing actually. I'm taking, I'm taking an hour off where I'm going to go for a walk or there's a weird obsession now with, with appearing busy all the time. Yeah. I mean, is anybody else kind of scared of boredom? Because that kind of terrifies me a little bit, like allowing yourself. But I totally get what you're saying, which is you have to be in that moment where something in you has to relax because the tension won't won't get your results. No, no, you got to just step away for a while, you know. And I, I always have, you know, even if it's as simple as a guitar or pick mm -hmm. it, you know, I, I, me and my wife have a little like table with some clay on the back there, and you know, while the commercial work doesn't often require clay, like just getting off that stylus and going, getting your hands and mashing in some clay. Or, it's just a different, I think, putting yourself in a different context for a little while allows your brain to sort of snap out of that funk it was in. Yeah. So it can, awesome. it can pertain to the job, but I, I think it's just don't trust that they're squeezing it out of yourself. I think that's why so much stuff, you see productions that come out of a heavy production line and it's almost like you can feel it. You can, you can see the, the lack of sleep in the, in the mm. project sometimes. All right, guys, Andrew, man, thank you again so much. Really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and for popping in. I know you've got a lot going on. Hey, no worries, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.